This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Afternoon Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 24th of July, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is Stonehenge, from lesson plan to school trip visit. Welcome! Good afternoon, fellow educators and dear, dear listeners. This is my 14th radio show as a hostess, and I'm delighted to share this experience in your lovely company. But first, I have to introduce myself. I'm a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have lived in the UK since August 2008, and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach languages as well as humanities. I have also experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL. All views are my own. Today, I want to focus on one topic that is relevant to me as an educator and also in my daily working life. The podcast will be on the topic of Stonehenge, from lesson plan to school trip visit. This is mostly relevant to teachers and educators, particularly history or humanities teachers, parents of school-educated children living in the UK, people interested in history, forensics history and prehistory, and finally, the curious and well-informed Please follow me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL if you want to interact with us live. The topic is Stonehenge. So, first, why have I decided to talk about Stonehenge on the last weekend of the summer term? Most students and teachers are on holiday now, and I feel really, really, really sorry for any teachers and students who still have to go to school tomorrow. But if you're lucky enough to be on holiday, let's just celebrate what we can do best about education. And to me, what I prefer is taking my students outside the classroom. So today, I want to focus on what I've done this year with my year seven. I am actually a history teacher in my current school, as well as an MFL, Modern Foreign Languages teacher. And this year I was in charge of two classes of year seven. We worked on their history curriculum and it happened that in autumn, we started with prehistory. So we started from the first Australopithecus skeletons found in Africa named Lucy after the Lucy in the Skies with Diamonds Beatles song. And then we went all the way to uh, Celtic Britain. So obviously, at one point, we talked about Neolithic period. 
And this is where the idea of taking my student to Stonehenge came to my mind. So this is what I'm going to talk about today. From prehistory to history, we went from the autumn term all the way to the school trip that we did in the summer term. So when you introduce prehistory for year seven, you have to really take into account that they don't know anything about it. So first, what I did is I, I took a timeline and I asked my students why we have different denominations for different eras and asked them, why do we call it prehistory? And then after a certain time, let's say 3000 BC, we start to call it history. And we had a little bit of a moment thinking about it. We had many suggestions, but the first one who mentioned writing was onto the winning lottery ticket. Yes, prehistory is the history of men before man started writing. After, the, after humans started writing, it is called history. So this is a very important thing that we do in history um, in, um, with our students. We explain the difference between prehistory and history. So from then on, we also studied BC or common era, so before the birth of Jesus Christ, and then the years going from, let's say, um, 50,000 before Christ, all the way to zero, the birth of Jesus, and then starting from zero all the way up to 2022, which is the most used calendar in Europe. But let's remember there's other calendars, the Persian calendar, the Jewish calendar, even the Russian calendar is slightly different from the European, Western European calendar. So it's always good to tell students that there's different calendars. So we're not too Western centered. But anyway, once this is established, we mentioned the Bronze Age and my students worked on the Beaker people. So the Beaker people were people who lived in Europe and also in the British Isles around 2500 before Christ. So they were Neolithic farmers. Now they had many skills. Um, they were making pottery, they were able to make weapons. They started using um, animals for meat or for uh, wool. So they were definitely people who were quite advanced technologically. Sadly, they didn't yet write or we haven't found any writing that they produced. So these beaker people, we don't really know what they believed in and we don't know what sort of language they were speaking, but we know they were making beer and they were using wheeled vehicles and they could make boats. So they were definitely technologically advanced. Now, another thing the beaker people could do was to make bronze. So this is why this era was called also the Bronze Age. Bronze is a strong alloy, a mixture of two metals, which is copper and tin. So it's very useful, but you need to mix these metals and have a very high temperature, which is above 1000 degrees centigrade. So definitely something that requires a lot of resources and a lot of knowledge and knowledge that is passed down. So if we haven't found any written, um, records, we know that these people could definitely exchange knowledge and we assume it was done orally. So they had tools, knives, axes, they had jewelry, they even had a type of plow, 
to um, prepare the land. So they were definitely very advanced technologically. Now, the Beaker people lived in what we would call very rudimentary houses made of wood and wicker and thatch. Um, it wouldn't get you an Airbnb booking right now, but I mean, it's better than a tent, let's say. Now, they also used jewelry and we found the jewelry. And um, this is something, can you imagine having in your hand a piece of jewelry made 2,500 before Christ? It's pretty wonderful. So they also had lapis, which is a type, lapis lazuli, which is a type of purple jewel, which is usually found, if you mind, in Afghanistan. So these beaker people in the UK could exchange goods and had a trade system which involved the Silk Road already. Isn't that wonderful to know that we're already trading links from Europe to Asia, which was already a Eurasia link. Now, these beaker people uh, might have been involved in the construction of Stonehenge. So we did a full lesson with my year seven on the beaker people, and we really insisted on what they used to wear, what type of food they would eat, because it's really important to make our students travel in time. I'm always trying to make my students understand what it feels to be a human living in the Neolithic Britain, in Neolithic Britain, because it's hard to imagine and it's hard to empathize with people who are so different from us. And yet it's only time separating us. Um, as I said, they like jewelry, they like drinking beer, they liked having nice clothing and they liked having housing, which protected them from the elements. So not so different from us. So when we got to the Stonehenge um, lesson, it took us, I would say, two periods. And our, in my schools, we have a lesson that lasts for an hour and 35 minutes or an hour and 40 minutes, depending if it's in the morning or the afternoon. So I guess for a normal 50 minutes lesson, this is the equivalent to four sessions, four different sessions. So first what we did is we introduced visuals because that's the beauty of having uh, access to digital boards which is very common in the uk not so much in other countries i know in france my colleagues in primary don't have digital boards and they still have chalk boards can you imagine that so we are very lucky in the uk uh, we don't always recognize it but we're lucky to have digital boards so we can use pictures Stonehenge looks amazing and there's so many pictures online that it's great to show the students. But now, because I knew we were going to take them eventually on a school trip to see Stonehenge, I decided to have my, power, my PowerPoint starting with a little do now activity. So whether you use do now or a starter activity, as a teacher, you usually try to find an easy task that introduces the topic to your students. That's not too challenging so that you don't have to spend too much time on correcting it or making the st students answer the questions, but something that has lots of visuals and that allows you to settle your class down as far as behavior is concerned and also to do all the things you have to do as a teacher, which is usually the register. So I gave my students 
a list of items with just pictures because I know there's some of my students who struggle with literacy. I have some students who are starting to learn English because they just arrived in the UK. So whenever I can, I rely on visuals. So on my do now, there was a picture of a water bottle, a picture of a tube of sun cream, a waterproof raincoat, a pen, biscuits, books, a back lunch, a picture of a mobile phone, a camera, a picture of um, pounds, the, the actual currency, fizzy drinks, a Swiss army knife, and a backpack and video games. So this is a list of items that was on my, on my picture that I gave to each child. Underneath it, there was four columns in a table. From left to right, it said, essential items you need to pack on your school trip. Then it said optional items you need to pack on your, on your school trip. Then third column said tolerated items if kept in the bag. And on the fourth column, it said items which are not permitted to take on a school trip. So I hoped that by making an activity, a starter activity that allows the students to realize what is essential to pack and what is not it would make them plan ahead because I want my students to be prepared when we go on a school trip. So way before we even did the whole lesson plan on Stonehenge, we had done half of it, but before we did the school trip, I did that starter to prepare them. So my students were clever enough to realize that the Swiss army knife was definitely a banned item to pack. Um, the uh, fizzy drinks were as well. Why, you would ask, why do we ban fizzy drinks in our uh, school trips? Well, it's a simple thing. Fizzy drinks are full of sugar and we are aware that in the UK we have a, an obesity crisis and up to 20% of children starting year seven ha uh, have um, a BMI that's too high. So ban on fizzy drinks for sure and also the reason why we banned it is because we were going to go on a coach and you can imagine what happens when you have a fizzy drink in your backpack and you move around a lot and then you open it in a coach so for that reason um, fizzy drinks were banned money was banned as well because we didn't want them to take money with them um, mobile phones went in the tolerated items if kept in the bag Video games were banned as well. Cameras were tolerated if kept in a bag. Biscuits as well, just because we didn't want biscuits to be um, all over the coach. And then in the essential items, we had a raincoat, sun cream. This is British weather we're talking about. Um, we had water bottle, pack lunch, and a pin. Right, so that was my starter activity. And they loved it because it was about preparing their school trip. They knew they were gonna go on a school trip to Stonehenge. And it was engaging because there was almost no writing. They could just use the visuals for the students who struggle with literacy and the others could just write down uh, in the column if they could. So um, that was a way to start. Now, as I mentioned, the lesson planning about Stonehenge came after we studied Neolithic and the bigger people in the UK. So they had a lot of knowledge about Neolithic times first. 
On my first slide where I add the keywords, I always make sure there's a box in a different color that gives the time period. It's a history lesson, so it's important to know where we at time-wise. So it said time period, Neolithic, and then it gave a date around 4,300 before the birth of Jesus, all the way down to 2000 before Christ. Now, I didn't want, my, my students are struggling with literacy, so I didn't want to drown them under an avalanche of keywords. The only keywords we defined were Neolithic, Sarsen, S-A-R-S-E-N, which is a type of stone used to build Stonehenge. I gave them the definition for cheese. You'd be surprised, but a lot of children don't know how we make cheese. Uh, cheese is made out of pressed or curdled milk, and it can be milk from uh, sheep, from female sheep, obviously, uh, from um, goats or from cows or from buffalo, female buffaloes. So not all the students know that. So I always make sure I define the terms we're going to use if they're essential. So I gave a definition of cheese and I'll explain why later. And I also gave the definition of the keyword rennet, which is curdled milk from the stomach of an unweaned calf containing renin, which is an enzyme secreted into the stomach of unweaned mammals. So why did I mention cheese making when I did a lesson on Neolithic times? Because I wanted to show the students what Neolithic people would eat at a party or at a celebration, because our school trip to visit Stonehenge was the culmination of a whole lesson plan on prehistoric times. And I wanted it to be a celebration. And we had studied religious events and celebrations in the Neolithic times. So I wanted my students to be prepared. We were going on a school trip. It was a very important event at the end of our school year. And we were going to celebrate. And we had to know how Neolithic people would have celebrated. So first, you might ask if you're not a history teacher, and for you, that wouldn't be your favorite choice to go to visit Stonehenge. You might ask, why go and see some old stones, old mossy stones in a field? Well, I, I'm a historian. This is my version of a fun day. But how do you sell that to a group of inner city London children, age 11 and 12? Well, I did make a point of telling them that Stonehenge is a very special place in the UK. It is the only one in the world because it's a World Heritage Site. It has been inscribed as such in the UNESCO World Heritage Site list in 1986. And if you are trying to see it with a worldview, it is as important as the pyramids in Egypt. So, obviously it's less, it's less grand in size, but Stonehenge is on the same list as the pyramids, the UNESCO list. And it's only two hours drive from London, where my school is. So, you know, it's much cheaper to go to visit Stonehenge than visit the pyramids. I wanted something that was on the world UNESCO list. We did it. Now, where is Stonehenge situated? Not any, not everybody is aware of geography or UK geography. So this was one question I asked my students. 
And the answer is Stonehenge is a prehistoric monument and it's located on the Salisbury Plain and it's in a region called Wiltshire. Wiltshire is located in the southwest of England, two miles from Amesbury, and the nearest big town, I mean big is relative, big in European terms, not big in Chinese terms, for instance, the nearest town is Salisbury. Salisbury has a cathedral and quaint little shops, but we didn't go and visit Salisbury, sadly. But you might want to do that now that you're on a holiday, dear educator. So, obviously, my students had lots of questions about the stones, and they were quite interested in it, believe it or not. So first, the first question was, how old is Stonehenge? So, it is hard to give a very precise answer, because remember, I did mention that the Beaker people or Neolithic people living in the UK haven't left written records, which is why we think they didn't have writing as a skill. We're not sure, but so far we haven't seen any evidence. So we have done studies on the materials we found on the site. Now, the first materials we found were a sort of wooden pole, a little bit like a totem, uh, or totem, I should say, um, and it dates from the Mesolithic period, so a little bit more ancient, which is 8,500 and 7,000 before Christ. So these wooden poles were already put in a circle shape. Now, most of England was woodland. Humans hadn't started cutting the trees. And the chalk downland in the area of Stonehenge was an unusually open landscape because there was not many trees there. So it might have become very early on a site where people gathered because there was not the need to chop, chop up the wood. It was already quite bare. So this has become a place of meeting. Now, before the stones at Stonehenge were erected, Stonehenge was actually a place where barrows were created from 3500 before Christ. So it was a place of burial. It was a place where we put people, people's remains. Now, I always try to mix in my lesson planning slides or sheets that I give to my students with a lot of reading. I mean, history is reading based. So I try to interspersed my reading tasks with more visual talking tasks. So I did give a lot of reading to do and then also I, I showed visuals and what we've been working and drilling since autumn is primary and secondary source. So primary means that it's a source made from the, um, the time that we are studying and um, Secondary means that it's a source that has been made later on. So, for instance, if I make a sword with wood and um, in a shape of a metal sword that came from the Neolithic time, my wooden sword is a secondary source. If I write a story about a Neolithic person and I put it in a history book, this is a secondary source. But if I bring a 
type of stone that I found on site, it is a primary source. So we are constantly asking our students, is this primary or secondary? And they're very good now at identifying what is primary or secondary. The only ones they're struggling with, struggling with is pictures, because when we take a picture of something, it is harder to date and to see if it was a primary or secondary, but we're still working on this. So a lot of objects are found around Stonehenge, and these objects have been studied many times. And what we find a lot are cremated human remains. So as I said, Stonehenge was a place of cremation, burial, and basically a, a sort of massive open-air cemetery. So I did explain that to my students and they love when there's a little bit of gory details. So um, definitely horrible histories were on the winning uh, ticket when they devised their books and shows. Stonehenge has the horrible histories factor. It was a burial ground from 3500 BC. And we do love a little bit of creepiness. So I did mention that to my students. Now, what we also had a lot of focus on was the type of stones. Now there's two types of stones at Stonehenge. There's the sarsen stones, and they are post-glacial remains of a cap of Xenozoic silcrete. So that's technical geological terms, and I apologize if my French pronunciation is not giving them their due respect. But what it is, is it's dense hard rock created from sandbound uh, by silica. So it's basically silicified sandstone. And this dates from the Quaternary times. So times when there was no humans yet. And the Sarsen is a shortening of the word Saracen stone, and it arose in the Wiltshire dialect. So these are stones we found in quantity in Southern England on the Salisbury Plain and the Marlborough Downs in Wiltshire. So these are local stones. And as I said, there were two types of stones. So the Sarsen stones and the blue stones. The blue stones are smaller. The Sarsen stones were erected in a concentric arrangement, some in a, in a horseshoe shape and some in the outer circle. And the blue stones were set up in a double arc. So they had a different function. Now, these stones, it took a long time to put them up. We have an approximate timing. So we think that it took 200 or 300 years from the first sarsen stones to be erected and then the blue stones to be added. So you can see that this was a work in process. A little bit like the Sagrada Familia in Spain, which has been being built for 100 years, the Stonehenge site was a building site for a long time and there was modifications and alterations and transformations over hundreds of years. So we don't really know why, but there was a lot of digging and some of the stones were moved. So maybe they were moved from a circle shape onto a horseshoe shape. Whatever happened is still unknown. The reasons why are still unknown, but we know that there was a lot of activity and they were rearranged. Now, Neolithic people started building a stone 
is one of the questions that the Year 7 loved to ask. And I did ask them, how can you lift a stone without having machines, electricity? Well, they came up with ideas. Some were a little bit more quirky than others. But finally, we realized that the only way was by having technology. And technology was using ropes and wooden structures and then pulling. Pulling ropes and allowed us to move the stones. And then a lot of people power, obviously. A lot of elbow grease. But this is how we think the Neolithic people managed to erect the stones. Using wooden slats, ropes, pulling them, and then levying. So what is the site like in the Neolithic times? Well, I did explain that we started with wooden poles in a circle shape. So this seemed like a very important religious site. Remember, we found lots and lots and lots of charred remains and bones because it was a cremation site and a burial site. But next to the burial site, there was also a village and it's called Durrington Walls. Now, Durrington Walls was a place that welcomed a lot of people. And these people came here. We don't really know why, but we know that they had a big party when they were there because we found so many antlers discarded in pits. So I assume that was the way of recycling at the, at the time, at the Neolithic time. So people gathered at Stonehenge, they stayed at the village, they ate a lot of deer, they drank a lot of beer or mead as we called it, and they also ate a lot of cheese. And this is why in my keywords for my year seven, I gave them the word rennet and cheese. You're gonna ask me, how on earth do you know they had cheese when they visited Stonehenge in Neolithic times? Well, it's simple. There's lots of videos you can access on the English Heritage website. And there are scientists who have studied ceramics. Remember, pottery was already an art that humans had mastered in Neolithic times. So on pottery, we found res residues of fat. And after treating that fat residue, we managed to scrape it and we found milk molecules. And after studying them, we realized that the milk wasn't just drank as a liquid. It was curdled and it was consumed as cheese. So one thing we saw and watched during my lessons with my year seven is how to make cheese and in a Neolithic way. Well, it's pretty simple and you can try it at home and I would advise it to do, to do so with your children over the summer. It's very easy. You take some unpasteurized milk if you have access to it, but whole milk or Jersey milk is fine. And then obviously Neolithic people would use an extract from rennet. If you don't have rennet, because I mean, we don't always have access to unweaned calf and their stomach content, but you can use vinegar or lemon juice, which is not very Neolithic obviously, but rennet, vinegar or lemon juice. Drop some drops of rennet or lemon juice or vinegar in your milk 
and wait, and you're gonna see it curdle immediately. After curdling the milk, you're gonna sieve it through a clean cloth, and what you get is the curdle, curdled milk. And if you press it and compress it, you end up with something that looks like cottage cheese. And there you get, you have it. It's nearly thick cheese. The way it was eaten at these big celebrations around Stonehenge, 3,500 before Christ. So, my students knew they were going to visit the site. I did show them what Neolithic people would be eating. So, roasted deer, a type of bread, and then cheese, curdled cheese. And I asked them, would you eat that? Obviously, they said no, they're not particularly adventurous. But I did ask them, what would you bring? And they were very happy to describe me all the types of sandwiches they were planning on me making. But what they remember is that the people who lived in the Neolithic times used to go to Stonehenge and celebrate. What they celebrated, we're not sure. We knew it was religious. We knew it was about ancestors because it was a burial site. We, we hope that they had a great fun. But remember, I mentioned these pits, rubbish dumps, where we found lots of bones of animals. Well, we found 800,000 types of animal bones there and lots and lots of broken pottery. So they might have been a little bit drunk and discarded their potteries or their, uh, the contents of uh, that held their lager. So we know they were having large feasts. We know they were not really frugal because there was still a lot of meat attached to the bones that we found. So to me, it shows that they had a good diet. They had surpluses because it ended up in the bin. So you know when you, we criticize each other because we have a lot of food waste? Well, the Neolithic people did as well, which I find quite funny. Again, we're not that dissimilar from people from the Bronze Age. So lots of animals were slaughtered. Um, we think a lot of pigs were eaten and they were killed on site in autumn and winter. So we think because a lot of the pigs were young when they were killed because we found and dated the bones, we think that they had parties in the spring and also in the autumn because the piglets would have achieved a certain maturation in the autumn and they were ready for being slaughtered and eaten. Now, obviously, I showed the students the video of how to make the milk, the cheese. Um, they wouldn't have tried it if I had brought some. If you have daring students with their taste buds, you might want to make the cheese or ask the food technician or the DT teacher to do some homemade cheese with them. That is something I would have liked to do, but I didn't have the resources and the time to organize that. Now, another thing you can do if you want to engage other types of subject, not just history, is get in touch with the DT teacher and ask them to, pre to prepare a lesson on sundial making. Because the other function of Stonehenge it wasn't just a religious burial cremation site. It was also a way to keep time. Stonehenge was a, a gigantic sundial. I would say it was a little bit like a Neolithic clock. So winter was a time of darkness, sometimes hunger, and 
we can imagine when the days end around three or four o'clock and you don't have maybe candles or you can only rely on the light from a fire in a tiny hut in the village of Dunstall Walls, you might think it was very difficult to go through winter. Um, so Neolithic people were really keen on celebrating the becoming of summer. We all know that on the 21st of June, there is still celebrations at Stonehenge. Don't try and book the visit on the 20th or the 21st because it is not open to schools on that date because it's open to the public who want to celebrate the summer solstice. So when you talk about Stonehenge with students, with year seven students, you need to talk about the solar cycle. And that's when you can link it to a physics lesson, which I wouldn't do because my knowledge of it would be pretty short. But I can tell you that the summer equinox at Stonehenge is still happening. So from 3500 BC up until 2022, there's still people going to Stonehenge at the summer equinox to celebrate. I think it's wonderful to see that we keep the rituals we started so many millennia ago. Now, obviously, if you're Scandinavian, the 21st of June is a very important date. Uh, it's midsummer night. If you happen to be in Sweden or Norway at that time, it's wonderful because the sun doesn't really set. It's daylight almost all night, so you can have a proper party. Obviously, in the UK, you will still have darkness coming around 10 o'clock. So it's a different way of celebrating. But the summer solstice is a time of mysticism, magic. It's a time where myths come to life. And for some uh, professor of history, for Ronald Hutton, professor of history at the University of Bristol, this is the night when the normal laws of nature are suspended and when spirits and fairies can come into contact with humans and our world can touch the world of the beyond. Isn't that fascinating? That's definitely worth a visit to Stonehenge. So when you talk about Stonehenge to your students, you can talk about obviously Neolithic lifestyle with the, the little huts they lived in, with the hunting, chopping wood, bronze making, uh, mining tin and um, to make to make bronze, making weapons, making plows to start cultivating the land, farming, having animals, making cheese, but you can also talk about jewelry making, as I mentioned, and trade. Remember the lapis lazuli gem that was on some Neolithic jewelry, which implies that they were trading with people who lived as far as Afghanistan on the Silk Road. But you can also talk about mysticism and fairies and folklore, because this is a place that celebrates spirituality and the beyond. We go to Stonehenge because we want to celebrate what happened to our ancestors who are buried or cremated there. So there's a lot of themes. There's religious education, there is DT with product design with the sundial, there is food tech with making cheese out of unpasteurized milk, there is also technology and physics with erecting the stones to a standing position with a system of rope and wooden slates. There's so many encompassing 
subjects you can deal with when you talk about Stonehenge. So if you do your lesson planning ahead, you might want to collaborate with other teachers in your school. You might want to reach out to other departments and organize a yearly plan lesson where the Stonehenge visit, Stonehenge visit at the end of the year is the epiphany of the lesson plan. Now, how did I organize it? This is something I'm going to share with you after the news. So stay tuned if you want to know more about how to take 130 students to a visit to Stonehenge. See you after the news. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development Every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. If you have a passion for education and a talent for teaching and learning, the Witherslack Group want to hear from you. Join them as they open an incredible new school in Essex and be a founding teacher of English, Maths, Science or Primary with multiple leadership opportunities available too. As Teachers Talk Radio partners, we know how much they care about the well-being of staff and their offer to you will be superb. To find out more and apply for a role, visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Several media outlets report on a 72-hour walkout planned by staff at Exam Board AQA, which could affect the delivery of GCSE and A-level results. The walkout was announced by Unison in a row over pay, with the union saying staff are struggling to make ends meet because of successive below inflation pay awards. Employees set to strike include those involved in organising the awarding of grades for both GCSE and A-level exams. The three-day action will take place from Friday the 29th to Sunday the 31st of July. Unison warns that industrial action could escalate unless talks reopen. The Manchester Evening News reports on comments made by the Conservative leader on Bury Council as he launched an attack on teachers, rail workers and junior doctors who may consider striking for better pay. Russell Bernstein, opposition leader on the council, said, Shame on any teacher who takes strike action. 
and suggested those who did would be ignoring their responsibilities. He criticised possible strike action at a time when children and young people had finally begun to think about having a normal school year, after two years of disruption due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Labour councillors for Bury dismissed his comments as childish and out of touch. With many schools breaking up today, regional news outlets are providing parents and carers with details of activities on offer this summer. In Essex, the council is encouraging people to think outside the car and features activities which can easily be reached by bike, on foot or using public transport. In Islington, the council's Heatwave summer programme offers free, fun, educational activities for all ages, including Caribbean cooking, poetry, filmmaking, roller skating, special effects makeup and animal care. Whilst in Stoke-on-Trent, the Pottery Shopping Centre is opening an indoor beach, complete with deck chairs just in time for the summer holidays. The beach is free of charge and open to anyone. A check of local council and media outlets is a good place to start for ideas this summer. From today onwards, UK degrees will be recognised as the equivalent to degrees from universities in India. The Government of India signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the UK Government, which will allow those taking a degree in the UK to be eligible for employment in India. Those with Indian university degrees will be also treated on a par with UK degree holders and eligible for jobs in the UK too. It is hoped the arrangement will bring a much needed boost to the UK economy. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to support a question everyone will see at the start of next year. It goes something like this. Hi Edu Twitter, can you reply with where you are so I can show my class how far a post on the internet can reach? With a bit of free tech, you can make this much more visual. I'm going to use Google Maps because it's free and most likely you'll have used Google Maps at some point in the past. So, when you have all your responses, sign into Google, Go to Maps and click on the menu next to the search box. That's the three lines that look like a burger. From the menu, select My Places. You'll now have four options. Lists, Labeled, Visited and Maps. Click on Maps and at the bottom select Create Map. Now you can give the map a title so you can find it next year for comparison and add all the places from your Twitter replies. Simply type the name of the place. When it appears with a blue point marker, you can click the plus sign to add it to the map and then select the colour to help it stand out. When you've finished, all places will be saved and you can access the map by following the first few steps. Menu, My Places, Maps. There are loads of other great tools to use also. Measure the distance from your school to those places. Hit Preview and go into the View Only mode. Here you can select a place and you treat it to a short bio and an image of the area. So next time you're looking to bring a lesson to life, why not try using maps to help pupils see where places are in the world? Do you have any top tips for mapping? Why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Dear listeners, thank you for listening to the news. Now we're going back to our lesson planning, which is including the Neolithic times, the Beaker people in the UK, and all the way to Stonehenge, with a visit to Stonehenge as the culmination, 
at the end of the school year. So this is what I did this year with my year seven. I took them on a, a trip at the end of the year in June. And this is something that I would love to recommend to any teachers in humanities. This is quite easy to do. So the first step is to book a date with admin. And then once you have the date, you go on the English Heritage website. They have um, one page on education and you can get what is called an education visit permit. Now, it is very easy to do. You just fill in your contact details, your school contact details, the number of students you're going to take with you and what uh, sort of day you're planning. Now, this is a free education visit, which is why I'm advocating for the use of the English Heritage website. You can take your students for free to any of their sites. And there's hundreds of sites in the UK, not just next to London, but all over the UK. So please, if you teach humanities, or if you just want to expand your students' general knowledge, check the English Heritage website. I did, and I chose Stonehenge for reasons I evoked in the first part of this podcast. So once I secured my date, I had to prepare what is the admin bulk of the school trip, which is an event plan. Well, it's pretty simple. You need to write down the event leader's name, myself, the support staff, at the date, write down a list of all the extra staff you're going to take with you. We needed 10 teachers because we were going to take 130 plus students. We, need, we needed a route, so that was easy. I just had to put the postcode of my school and the postcode of the Stonehenge site because we were going to travel by coach. And this is where you hit the financial burden of preparing a school visit. My site visit was free with the English Heritage site, but traveling back and forth to the place was expensive. So I tried um, to get a cheaper coach trip. Sadly, we didn't book early enough to get the cheapest one. In the end, I have to be honest with you, it cost us £4,000 to take 130 students plus 10 teachers from London to Stonehenge. So it is a big chunk of budget. If you live closer, it might be cheaper. And if you book it in September for next July or June 2023, you might get a better deal. Just bear in mind, there's a hike in oil and gas prices, which is also having a knock-on effect on coach hire. So this was the most expensive side. Sadly, I couldn't just get any cheaper way but at least the site visit was free. Now you need to think about your route, your equipment and the time and the staff involved. And it's it can be difficult to get staff out because you all know with COVID, we've had a lot of issues with supply staff. We can't find supply staff. It's difficult to secure su supply staff. So if you take 10 members of staff out, it's gonna have an effect on the staff that's left in the school and on um, you're going to have to hire supply staff. So make sure that there's a budget. Ask your line manager. Now, this the third task. So you've booked your visit for free. You booked your coach if you need a coach 
and now you need to, to write the letter to parents. So I made a simple letter to parents, giving the date, the time, what to pack. Um, and there was a parent slip so they could give their answer if they wanted their child to go or not. Out of 140 parents letter we gave, we got most of the students letter back and only one student said he didn't want to come and that is because that student is sick in the car or in the coach and he didn't want to risk having to be sick. So that was pretty good turnout, I would say. Now, when you're on site at Stonehenge, you need to know there is almost no weather protection once you're there. It means if it rains, you will be under the rain. If it's really, really hot as it is today, you will be in the direct sun. So you need to plan accordingly, which is why I did ask my students to put their raincoat and their sun cream in their bag because you might need both knowing English weather. Saying that, when we were there, it rained. It didn't rain the whole time, but it did. And as it was outside for most of the day, I ended up with very wet trousers the rest of the day. So make sure you plan accordingly. Um, but you know, it's, it's part of um, the experience. You make a memory. And if you have very wet shoes and trousers, you're ne never going to forget it. So the visitor center has a museum, which is great. And then there's also a reconstitution of the housing. So you remember that little village next to Stonehenge, Darwington Walls, there's a reconstitution of the houses. So the little huts, they were made out of a type of, I would say, packed earth walls, dried, and then wicker or thatch roof and a wooden structure. And the children can go inside the huts and they loved it. They started screaming when they were inside, they were very loud, but they had so much fun pretending to be Neolithic people. You need to walk for 30 minutes from the museum part to the site of the stone circle. So for me, it was a very good thing to do because I have inner city London students who have never been out in the countryside. And I think for them, it was the first time ever. We saw cows. At one point, we saw horses. They were screaming with delight. They mentioned I'm just going to quote what the students were saying. Oh, miss, the air feels so much fresher here than in London. Isn't that beautiful? We were in the middle of nowhere in the countryside on a field. They commented on the amount of cow dung that was scattered all over the field. Yes, they had never seen cow dung before. And this was my occasion to tell them, oh, you know that in many countries, people dry the cow dung and then burn it as coal to make fire for cooking their meals. Obviously, they had disgust written all over their faces when I told them that. But the discussions we ended up to have on that 30 minutes walk, and I, I just remind you, this is when it was raining a lot. So we were talking about the fresh air in the countryside. We were talking about the cow dung. We were talking about just the sheep we saw in the distance. So lots of talking. And the kids, despite having buckets of rain pouring over their heads, were smiling. Now, 
Once you get to Stonehenge, the actual site, you can't touch the stones. And I know it was a massive disappointment for my students. But I did explain that if everybody touched the stones, there wouldn't be any stones left after a hundred years. So they understood it. We took pictures. We, I had planned so many other things, but the day wasn't long enough. I had planned to make them do clay um, jewelry. I had bought clay for them and I had planned for them to make uh, a sundial on site, but we didn't have time. So I would advise you to do these kind of art crafts before you go to Stonehenge. And for st the Stonehenge visit, just plan that, that walk and um, allow them time to take the pictures because they love to have souvenirs and maybe just one or two discussion um, around the site and then you go back to the museum. There is also a bus shuttle service from the museum to the stone circles. This was handy once we were rain soaked because they, the mood had changed a bit. So it was nice to be back in the shuttle bus. But walking in, those, in the field for me was part of the experience of taking inner city London's kids outside London. Now, my resources. So obviously the Stonehenge trip was part of a strong lesson plan involving all of the learning from autumn till spring. We did um, prehistoric, prehistoric times and then we did the Beaker people and then we did Stonehenge and then we moved on to the Vikings and the Jutes and the Picts and all the tribes, the Angles, the Saxons, the Normans Finally, we ended up on the Normans and we started the plague year. So you see, we covered maybe 8,000 years, maybe 3,000 years, no, 8,000 years of learning. It's too much in too little time, but at least I hope they have this idea of chronology, chronology and events leading to other events. Now for this, the trip and precisely, I had started with, for instance, a word search and they had to, to find blue stone, which is the second type of stone used to make the circle. They had to find Stonehenge. They had to find Landmark, England, Sarsen, the first type of stone, the one that's um, silica based. The word tourists, because they were tourists, and the word stone and war. Now, I also devised a little match uh, activity. They had words and their definitions. This is very easy to prepare and it's funda fundamental for a history teacher to have a matching definition and terms because you know that the aim of a year of year seven history lessons is for the students to be able to use difficult words in their writing and improve their literacy. So the words I gave them was archaeologist, bluestone, cremation, a long barrow, a ceremony, excavation and a lintel. Now we did learn that Stonehenge was a burial place. So the, the long barrow is the type of burial mound built um, underground with ditches on the sides. A cremation is the act of burning a dead body. A, a ceremony is any type of celebration that has religious undertone. 
excavation is looking inside the ground and to study what we found. And the lintel is the horizontal stone that sits on two, on top of two vertical stone. So Stonehenge doesn't have many uh, lintel left due to erosion of time and also erosion with um, water damage over the years. But we still learned these words. And we learned also the definition of archaeologists because this is definitely something they have to write in their essays at the end of the year. So all these words are complicated words. They are Latin words. For some of my students, it's really hard. Some might have dyslexia or just literacy delays due to not having attended primary school for a full length of time or having English as an additional language. So I am aware that these terms are difficult, but we are drilling them. We are using them in a matching word and definition task. We are using them in word searches. So they will be familiar with these words after a whole year of lesson planning. I also devised a questionnaire with simple questions. Obviously, we studied the PowerPoint with the pictures of Stonehenge, with the cheese making, um, with the way we built and erected the stones. So at the end of this, they had a questionnaire. The questionnaire was simple. Where is Stonehenge located? Well, it's in southwest of England in Wiltshire near Salisbury. What is Stonehenge? That's the easiest question. It's a stone circle. Um, what was the site used before the stone circle was built? So if you were with me since the beginning of this podcast, you will know it was a site where we cremated bodies and we buried them in barrows. So it was basically a cemetery. When was the stone circle built? So the first wooden poles erected were in the 8,000 before Christ, so Mesolithic times. And then the first stones were erected in 3,500, starting at that time. So Neolithic times. What types of stone were used? We established two types, the blue stones and the sarsen stones. What was the site used for once the stone circle was built? Well, we don't really know, <laughs> which is the beauty of learning about prehistory and history. We have to make assumptions. And this is also something we've worked on since autumn with my students. We worked on evidence, what that means, assumptions, opinions, hypothesis, uh, hypothesis, which is a Greek word, another word that's hard to spell. So all these terms they're used to and all these terms, they know how to use them. So they know that we don't know who built the stone circle and why exactly. We have hypotheses on why it was built. We think it was to celebrate um, religious events. We think it was to honor the dead. We think it was a place of gathering just the way it is still now on the 21st of June. We think it had a, a powerful meaning because people traveled from far to gather there. And we think it was a party place because remember Durrington Walls, the village next to Stonehenge, had massive dump waste pits filled with bones of animals 
and pottery, which showed that they had big parties. So I tried to show my students that Stonehenge was a, a religious site, but also like a big festival where people gather. And I'm, I assume, and that's my hypothesis or my assumption that people were singing and celebrating and having a good time at the same time. Uh, so three functions for Stonehenge, religious, burial, celebration, and also I forgot the sundial to keep track of time. So many, many functions. Now, the last question of my questionnaire was, is the site still in use today? And you know it is, because I did say that on the 21st of June, people can gather around the stones for the sunrise, uh, for the summer solstice. And what happens to the sun on the summer solstice? Well, it's um, rising and it's litting that sundial. So this is what the students took out of their lesson planning on the topic of Stonehenge. All this knowledge, hypothesis, assumption, evidence, um, cremation, religious celebrations. This is language that now they can use and they know how to use to the point that the, a member of SLT asked the students after their trip, he said, did you like it? And they were all very happy they did the trip. And he said, so what do you think about the stone circles? And obviously some students said, oh, it was actually smaller than I thought it would be because they had that vision of a full circle. They didn't take into account that erosion had happened in 2000 years. Or I should say more than that, many years. So they were a bit disappointed by the size of the circle, but they all said, we don't know why it was built and we don't know who built it, but we know it was special because there were bones and bodies cremated on site. And some students asked, but, but miss, did we dig underneath the stone circle to see what was in? And I did explain that we have over the years, but you know, we still don't have all the evidence. And this is what they were telling to the member of SLT, senior leadership team. They were saying, we, we have a few evidence, but we are not sure. And this is what the work of a historian is. We need to present the facts and maybe voice some hypothesis, but we're not here saying something in a dogmatic way because we do not always have the answers. And I think this is the most important take on visiting Stonehenge. It's the wonder that there are things that humans built on this planet and we still don't have all the answers. Now, what did we do that makes history a little bit more fun? Because, you know, visiting site is great, but it's not really hands-on. We can't touch the stones, they're protected. So what we did is an Make your own Stonehenge. So that was homework. I showed a plan of the site to my students with a reconstitution of what the stone circle was when it was full. So as a proper sundial with all the vertical stones holding onto the lintels, these horizontal stones that sat on top of the vertical stones. So I showed them the plan, the original plan. And then I told them, design your own Stonehenge using cork, biscuits, cheese, toilet roll, paper, cardboard, cereal boxes, stones, clay, dough, play-doh. Be imaginative, be crazy, just bring your own Stonehenge. 
and I just put it on their Google Classroom in February. The visit happened in June. Well, I didn't realize what I was gonna receive. I got so many homework brought in. It was wonderful. And if it wasn't brought in, it was by, on picture. So I got edible Stonehenge with biscuits, bourbon biscuits, <laughs> which some use two different types of biscuits because they noticed that there was the sarsen stone and the blue stones. I had Play-Doh Stonehenge, clay Stonehenge in different colors. I got cheesy Stonehenge, so made out of um, rectangles cut from a cheddar cheese. I got toilet roll Stonehenge and this works fine because actually you can easily put the horizontal toilet roll on top of the vertical ones and it creates that lintel stone. I got many of the toilet rolls one. I got uh, Jenga, you know the board game with wooden pl planks, um, Jenga Stonehenge. I got a mix of cardboard and baking parchment Stonehenge. Um, and also one that looks like a type of cardboard that was painted in gray. Some students were so imaginative, they used pencils, highlighters, whole nuts, walnuts, almonds, paint and glue sticks to make their stone hedge stone circle. I mean, this was wonderful. A mix of everyday objects, water bottles, and batteries, and even nail polish as the structure for making their Stonehenge. Obviously, this was put on a slide and it was projected in the entrance of the school because it was so creative and so fun. All these Stonehenge representations made out of everyday objects. Um, I have to thank my year seven because they made such a great homework piece. If your students don't have the time or the inclination to do their own edible Stonehenge out of cheese, they can also prepare a poster. This is the more classic homework. And I also did that. So they had different types of homework, creative homework, and then more classic homework. And the posters were obviously pasted on the walls. So we had lovely posters and they had to find 10 facts on each. So the facts kept coming and they were all so different. Someone said that there was a painter who painted Stonehenge with watercolor in the 16th century. And his name was Lucas de Heer. Uh, I guess it's a Dutch name. Uh, someone said that a decapitated man was excavated from the site in 1923 and it happened to be a Saxon man. I mean, these facts are a little bit gore, particularly the, the latter one, but this is what enriches history. And I'm sure my students are going to remember doing that homework and making it a poster because they it took time and research and it shows the love for history. And this is the love for stories. History is made of the stories of human beings and children love stories so much. So um, to sum up, if you want to follow suit, my only advice is please make sure you start 
early. Make sure you tell your colleagues that you're going to do a school trip to Stonehenge. Tell them uh, that they can add cooking to the lesson planning with making your own cheese, for instance. Tell the DT teacher or product design teacher that they can make a sundial. You only need paper, um, paper plates and a straw or a pencil. And then you need to time it so that they add an hour every where, where the sun hits every hour and they mark the time. You can also um, do the edible Stonehenge competition. They can use biscuits or cheese and bring their, their, the picture of their edible Stonehenge structure. I hope they ate the cheese afterwards because I'm not advocating food waste. I also had students who made the cardboard Stonehenge and this is in my room on a shelf. It's beautiful and I'm, I'm going to keep it. Um, I might ask the student if they want it back though, but if they say yes, I'll keep it for many years. Um, you can also tell the students to use clay that you provide and then you tell them how to make Neolithic jewelry. So that's pretty simple. It's just making a little, it looks like teeth. And then you make a hole in it and the, you can buy rope and it just makes, it dries easily. Of course it's fragile, but it's good for dexterity and being hands-on in a history class is really important. So you can use clay and then they can have fun with making their own Neolithic jewelry. Another thing you can do is um, telling them to just bring a sample of the kind of clothing people would wear at these celebrations around Stonehenge um, using hemp material. You can ask the teacher who does um, art or sewing or, or uh, embroidery. If you have a big uh, product design team, you can involve other people from your team. And this is the beauty of going on site at the end of the year is that these teachers who are going to help you to do the cheese making or the sundial making, they'll be delighted to join you at the end of the year and take the students with you. So I can't recommend enough English Heritage website. I'm sure there is a site near you where you can take your students. It's a free visit. You don't need to book a guide on top because that's extra. We didn't need a guide. We didn't have time. We just had coaches to pay for, took all the students, arrived, went to the museum, had a lovely walk in the countryside, went to see the site. And I just want to end up with that quote from one of the students. The student was heard saying, I'm never going to forget that I went to see the site and the Stonehenge circle. Isn't that beautiful? This is, this is what made my day when I, when someone told me the, the words that were pronounced facing the stone circle. These students are inner city London children who have never been out in a countryside before for some of them and seeing stone circles erected 3,500 years before, before Christ made them happy and enthusiastic and they, they were in the moment. That's mindfulness and that's the joy of history. So I can only recommend you try, but my advice is start early, 
Look for a site that is related to the topic you're studying with your students. And if you're not a history teacher, don't worry. You can be an RE teacher and you could do a whole thing about Stonehenge, asking the students, what do you think, what sort of celebrations did they do there? Could you imagine a religious spiritual celebration that happened at Stonehenge? They can study myth and folklore, the summer solstice. I mean, this is rich in topics. And in physics, even a physics teacher could take his students to Stonehenge, teach them how on earth these Neolithic people without electricity managed to erect these stones with rope and wooden slats and elbow power. So there is something for everyone if you visit Stonehenge. Now, I hope this made you excited at the idea of organizing a school trip. It seems daunting, but I think after having had COVID, some students haven't had a trip for two and a half years or even more. So it is our duty as educators to make sure we organize student school trips. And again, some visits are free. English Heritage offers free visits. If you can find the budget for the coach hire, that's it. The day is booked, it's gonna happen, and it's wonderful. So we are creating memories and we are inspiring young people. And they come out with all these questions. Some were saying, oh, I wish we could dig underneath to see if there's an underground structure. So I don't think there is an underground structure, but it shows how they are imaginative. And we could use that in English as creative writing. Imagine what's underneath the stone circles. And I'm sure they could write pages and pages of very exciting, quirky writing. So this is, this is it. Dear listeners, I hope I shared my enthusiasm for taking students on a school day trip. It has been a pleasure to take my year seven. It went very well. We, we, we did have a student who got sick in the coach, but that's part of traveling with students. And again, this is part of the, the whole package, isn't it? So I'm gonna leave you and I'm gonna wish you a beautiful summer. I hope you're going to have time to relax. Dear educators, I know this year has been difficult. I'm just hoping that next year will be easier and that you can take your students on more and more school trips. I haven't decided where I'm going to take my students next year. I've been asked by my year students, my, my year seven students, to do the Stonehenge trip every year because we don't change the topics every year. So I could take just the next generation of year seven to Stonehenge every year. I'm also thinking of doing another one for my year nine. So, you know, my mind is buzzing, as you can see. But please, please, please try and check out English Heritage website and make your own plan. It's exciting. And this is what makes our teaching the joy of our lives. So... I hope you have a lovely evening, dear listeners, and thank you for sharing it with me. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.
This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. If you have a passion for education and a talent for teaching and learning, the Witherslack Group want to hear from you. Join them as they open an incredible new school in Essex and be a founding teacher of English, Maths, Science or Primary with multiple leadership opportunities available too. As Teachers Talk Radio partners, we know how much they care about the well-being of staff and their offer to you will be superb. To find out more and apply for a role, visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Several media outlets report on a 72-hour walkout planned by staff at exam board AQA, which could affect the delivery of GCSE and A-level results. The walkout was announced by Unison in a row over pay, with the union saying staff are struggling to make ends meet because of successive below inflation pay awards. Employees set to strike include those involved in organising the awarding of grades for both GCSE and A-level exams. The three-day action will take place from Friday the 29th to Sunday the 31st of July. Unison warns that industrial action could escalate unless talks reopen. The Manchester Evening News reports on comments made by the Conservative leader on Bury Council as he launched an attack on teachers, rail workers and junior doctors who may consider striking for better pay. Russell Bernstein, opposition leader on the council, said, shame on any teacher who takes strike action, and suggested those who did would be ignoring their responsibilities. He criticised possible strike action at a time when children and young people had finally begun to think about having a normal school year, after two years of disruption due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Labour councillors for Bury dismissed his comments as childish and out of touch. With many schools breaking up today, regional news outlets are providing parents and carers with details of activities on offer this summer. In Essex, the council is encouraging people to think outside the car and features activities which can easily be reached by bike, on foot or using public transport. In Islington, the council's Heatwave summer programme offers free, fun, educational activities for all ages including Caribbean cooking, poetry, filmmaking, roller skating, special effects makeup and animal care. 
Whilst in Stoke-on-Trent, the Pottery Shopping Centre is opening an indoor beach, complete with deck chairs just in time for the summer holidays. The beach is free of charge and open to anyone. A check of local council and media outlets is a good place to start for ideas this summer. From today onwards, UK degrees will be recognised as the equivalent to degrees from universities in India. The Government of India signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the UK Government, which will allow those taking a degree in the UK to be eligible for employment in India. Those with Indian university degrees will be also treated on a par with UK degree holders and eligible for jobs in the UK too. It is hoped the arrangement will bring a much needed boost to the UK economy. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to support a question everyone will see at the start of next year. It goes something like this. Hi Edu Twitter, can you reply with where you are so I can show my class how far a post on the internet can reach? With a bit of free tech, you can make this much more visual. I'm going to use Google Maps because it's free and most likely you'll have used Google Maps at some point in the past. So, when you have all your responses, sign into Google, Go to Maps and click on the menu next to the search box. That's the three lines that look like a burger. From the menu, select My Places. You'll now have four options. Lists, Labeled, Visited and Maps. Click on Maps and at the bottom select Create Map. Now you can give the map a title so you can find it next year for comparison and add all the places from your Twitter replies. Simply type the name of the place. When it appears with a blue point marker, you can click the plus sign to add it to the map and then select the colour to help it stand out. When you've finished, all places will be saved and you can access the map by following the first few steps. Menu, My Places, Maps. There are loads of other great tools to use also. Measure the distance from your school to those places. Hit Preview and go into the View Only mode. Here you can select a place and you treat it to a short bio and an image of the area. So next time you're looking to bring a lesson to life, why not try using maps to help pupils see where places are in the world? Do you have any top tips for mapping? Why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.